Good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. You know, in February of uh, 2010, uh, the president and chief operating officer of Waste Management Incorporated, some of you are familiar with the company, but uh, the president and CEO of uh, Waste Man Management wanted to find out how things were really working in his company. And so he uh, secretly left the comfort and the cleanliness of his corporate office in Houston, and he went undercover as a trash collector on one of his company's many trash trucks. And if you know the story, for one long week, Larry O'Donnell cleaned filthy portable toilets. He picked up residential garbage. He worked a fast-moving sorting line and a recycling facility that Waste Management owns. And in short, he learned a lot about his company. He learned a lot about his employees, his customers, and even some about himself in the process. And some of you may remember even seeing Larry do some of this because he was the first undercover boss in the hit television series by that name, Larry O'Donnell. He was a CEO at the time. Uh, it, it's an interesting show if you've never seen it. It's fascinating. I, I enjoy it. I've watched several of the episodes over the years. Uh, you might want to check it out sometime if you have not ever seen it. But long before television came along with this concept, Someone far greater than a CEO or president of a corporation left the comfort, left the cleanliness of his heavenly home. He showed up in our world as God in a veiled, hidden, undercover form. Philippians 2 describes Jesus with these words, and I want you to follow along on the screen with me and listen carefully to what the scriptures say. Philippians 2, verses 6 and 7, though he was... God, the text says. Now, let's just pause right there. I want you to read that much with me. Though he was God, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges, the scriptures say, and he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. The mystery of the ages that this passage is talking about is that according to the Bible, Jesus, who is God, laid his divine privileges and position aside temporarily 2,000 years ago. And he mysteriously became one of us, the ultimate undercover boss, if you will. Now, here's what you and I have to do. We have to think about the implications of this, and our culture doesn't do this very well. But it's important for you and me to think this through. If Jesus is God, because notice what the text says, though he was God, right? If he's God, guess who spoke to Moses from the burning bush? Guess who sent the ten plagues upon ancient Egypt? Guess who parted the Red Sea? Guess who led Israel through the wilderness with a pillar of fire and a cloud? 
Guess who provided manna and quail for the Hebrews as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years? Guess who gave the descendants of Abraham the promised land? Guess who raised Saul, David, and Solomon to be kings over his people? Guess who revealed his glory to Samuel, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and all the other prophets and people that are spoken of in Scripture? Is that how you think of him? You know, most people nowadays don't think of Jesus in those ways. How they think of Jesus is, you know, caricature in a movie. You've heard me joke about it. He's an eight-pound, six-ounce baby, right? And in their minds, he's never grown up. He's still in a manger perpetually because we can control him and confine him there, right? That's how many of our culture think of him. Others think of him as an ancient mystic who died and somehow made his way onto stained glass. And they're not entirely sure how that happened, but it did. And they just look at it and go, that's the way it is. And they either like stained glass or they don't. That's about the extent of their thought on it. Well, as I pointed out last week, every one of us needs to periodically have our concept of God recalibrated, right-sized, This morning, it's important in this case that our concept of God, Jesus, be recalibrated periodically as well because the scriptures are really clear. Jesus is God. And if we don't have him as God in our mind, if we have him as just our best friend or, or, or somebody who's a good, noble prophet or teacher of old, if we don't have him right-sized in our mind, it messes up a whole lot of what it means to be his follower. And so for the next few minutes, I invite you to listen carefully, to take a few notes, because what I want to do is I want to show you what those who knew Jesus best had to say about his identity and greatness. And this is really important, and every one of us, even if you Think to yourself, oh, I I believe that he's God. I still want to invite you to write down these passages. I still want you to wrestle with this with me because I would contend that every one of us in today's culture, um, we shrink Jesus. We do not get him as he really is. And I believe what we do this morning will help with that. I'm going to introduce you to eight friends of Jesus. And you go, eight, oh, no. You just think this is going to be forever. And no, it's not. It's not, so I just warn you in advance, it's not. And See, you can test me on this. Uh, but I want to introduce you to eight friends of Jesus who knew him well and who understood his identity and his greatness in a way that you and I um, don't quite the same way. And as I walk you through this, just make note of them and think about this with me. The first friend is the great prophet John the Baptist. And John was actually a distant relative of Jesus if we had time to work our way through this. But John the Baptist tells us this about Jesus in the scripture. Speaking to the religious elite of his day, John said this in Matthew 3, I baptize with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God. But someone is coming soon who's greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not worthy even to be a slave and carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And what's the text say? With fire. Okay. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And he is ready. Get this. Verse 12. He is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. 
and then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. He uses a metaphor, an agricultural metaphor. In those days, they would take wheat, and they would, they would crush it and grind it, and then they would take a fork, a pitchfork, and they would throw the wheat into the air and, and the wheat and stubble and everything on a windy day, and the wind would blow away the chaff, and what would fall to the ground would be the wheat because it was heavier. And he's just saying, this is what he's going to do. He's going to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork, and then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. Is, Jesus, is the passage talking about barns and bonfires. Is that what it's talking about? No, this is a, this is a metaphor. Jesus, the scripture, John is saying, Jesus, the one who's coming, is going to separate another metaphor Jesus uses, is sheep from goats. And some will go into the presence of God and some will be punished forever. That's what he's saying. That's how the prophet John began Jesus' ministry. That was his description. Now, just think with me. Does that sound more like the God of Mount Sinai or Jesus as we in our culture tend to think of him? Which description does it sound more like? It, it sounds more like Sinai if you really take seriously what John says. And what's interesting about this is according to the rest of the text, Jesus, who is standing there listening... Never bothered to correct the record. He never interrupted John and said, whoa, 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 John, you know, you, you know, I know that's how it used to be. Things are going to be different now. That's not what he does. He lets him go on. And in fact, Jesus begins his ministry with the message of John, which was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Apparently, John's opinion of Jesus' authority and greatness was shared by others because friends 2, 3, and 4. Notice I said 8 was not going to take forever. 2, 3, and 4. Friends 2, 3, and 4. Peter, James, and John, three of Jesus' closest disciples. They agreed with John after having numerous unnerving experiences with Jesus. We could work our way through them if time was no, it was no consequence. But the fact is, I mean, they ride in a boat, you know, and uh, the middle of the night and a storm comes up, and what do they do? I mean, they're traumatized because Jesus is asleep and they're awake and they're sure they're going to die. You know the scene? And Jesus calms the storm, and they're wondering, what kind of man is this in this passage? And we could work our th way through many others, but the one I want to highlight for you is this unnerving experience that takes place in Matthew 17, verses 1 and following. The scripture says that Jesus took Peter and the two brothers, James and John, and led them up a high mountain to be alone. And as the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed. Now think about, think about what God looked like on Mount Sinai. Think about this, okay? How he shows up to Ezekiel. We looked at it last week. If you don't remember this, go listen to last week's message in Ezekiel 1. Just think of this description here. As, verse 2, as the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed so that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And suddenly... Moses and Elijah appeared and began talking with Jesus. Now, let's just pause right there. And I want you to think seriously about what these verses are describing right here. Is this normal in your life? When was the last time Moses and Elijah showed up with you? 
or anybody else from the past that for that matter. It just this is not normal. Okay, this is not this just everyday thing. I mean, it's, Jesus' face radiates light like the sun. His clothes are pure white like brilliant light. And Moses and Elijah show up, the two greatest of the prophets. And Peter, James, and John, Jesus' three closest disciples, are all standing there together seeing this. Actually, it would probably be more accurate to be, say, flat on their face observing what's going on. Traumatized by this, but they know they're not crazy. You know why? Because they're all three seeing the same thing. All three of them. The passage goes on and says, verse 4, Peter, who, who always speaks, you remember? Peter exclaimed, Lord, it's wonderful for us to be here. If you want, I'll make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. But even as he spoke, a bright cloud, now just think about Sinai, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Listen to him. The disciples were terrified and fell face down on the ground. And Jesus came over and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. And when they looked up, Moses and Elijah now were gone. And they saw only Jesus. As they went back down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. This was some time before he was going to be raised from the dead, but he just makes the point, you know. Don't tell anybody until somebody's, you know, until I've been raised from the dead. Can you imagine the implications of that? That'd be like, you know, you and me have some experience, and I say to you, just don't tell anybody about this until I've been raised from the dead. How are you going to respond to that? You are going to think, hmm, what is, we know the end of the story before they do. And they're processing this and trying to think, what on earth is he talking about? This has got to be a metaphor. That's what they think to themselves. Clearly, following Jesus was unlike following any person or prophet before or since. His power, his glory, his peers were in a league of their own. But it doesn't stop there. I want you to listen to another of his friends, Thomas. He had this to say about Jesus. Immediately after Jesus' death and resurrection, the Bible tells us that the other disciples, Jesus appeared to the other disciples. Thomas was not there, according to Scripture. And so... Uh, the disciples see Thomas after the fact, and this is what they say to him in John 20, verse 25. They said, you know, we've seen the Lord, but he, but Thomas replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail hands, the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound in his side. Now, just think with me about this. Thomas wasn't trying to be hard hearted here. He wasn't trying to be unbelieving. He was just a realist, right? He was familiar with what happens to people when they die. And he was not there when Jesus appeared to the rest of them. And he'd seen Jesus tortured. He'd seen him crucified. He knew where his tomb was. But the text goes on to say in verse 26 that eight days later, the disciples were together again. And this time Thomas was with them and the doors were locked. Think about this. The doors were locked, but suddenly as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look, into my, look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. 
My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. And Jesus told him, you believe because you've seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Friends, locked doors could not stop Jesus. Nail-pierced hands could not stop Jesus. A spear-pierced side could not stop Jesus. A grave could not stop Jesus. That ought to tell us something about his identity, his greatness, his uniqueness as it's compared among all other men who've ever lived before or since. If time were not an issue, I could go on to tell you the full story about many others. I could tell you the full story of of, uh, the Apostle Paul, whose first encounter with Jesus involved being blinded by the intense radiance of the glorified, resurrected presence of Jesus. I mean, literally, he's flat on his face in the presence of the glorious presence of Jesus I could tell you the full story of the centurion, really an acquaintance of Jesus, if you will, but he supervised the execution of him. And after watching for six hours Jesus on the cross, he watched him endure ridicule, abuse, dehydration, asphyxiation. He watched him endure uh, blood loss and excruciating pain. And after all of that, the centurion heard Jesus pray this, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That would be a puzzling thing to hear. And if that wasn't enough, he watched the sky grow dark at midday and stay dark for three hours. The the Bible says in Matthew 27 that when Jesus had cried out in a loud voice at the end of that that, uh, sixth hour, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook. The rocks split. Tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. And when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were understandably terrified, terrified, and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. This is not normal, they say to themselves. Friends, even in Jesus' death, his identity, his greatness were visible to all who took seriously what happened. There's one more person I need to briefly tell you about. Number eight. See how fast I'm going? Number eight. I'll tell you about Jesus' best friend. Who's that, you ask? That's John the Apostle. The Bible tells us John's nickname. His nickname was, some of you remember, the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is, you see this over and over again in the Gospel of John, and you see it in another place. But it's, he's the disciple whom Jesus loved. That was kind of his nickname. And I would guess that that nickname was given to him by the other disciples, and they would probably, it was probably a little bit of a disparaging nickname at times. He was like, you know, it's John, it's the disciple Jesus loves. You know, probably some of that going on at times because of the way they were competitive. 
But Jesus was the disciple whom Jesus particularly loved, probably closest to Jesus of all of the disciples. And late in his life, John had a visitation from Jesus. After Jesus' resurrection to the right hand of the Father, seated upon the throne of the heavens, after he'd been restored to his glorious power and presence, he'd, he'd come out from undercover, was seated on the throne. John has a visitation from Jesus. Do you remember John's description of his best friend, Jesus. This is how it goes in Revelation 1. You want to get an even fuller picture of it, read the whole book, and you'll, it'll open your eyes if this doesn't. Here's how John described Jesus, verse 14 and following. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. What's it sound like? Ezekiel chapter 1, Daniel chapter 7, Exodus 19, various other places as you start seeing these things, and Exodus 24 and other ones. And John goes on and says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Now, some of you are probably at this point saying, okay, well, Greg, you've sufficiently scared me to death here. Why is all this important? Here's why. Most of us in our day have no true idea of who Jesus really is. We have made Jesus in our image. And because he died willingly at the hands of cruel men, we're tempted, sometimes lulled into thinking that he's weak or timid or been victimized but it is imperative for your and my well-being, our well-being, that we understand that Jesus is not some weak and sleepy Savior. He is the unrivaled, all-powerful, all-knowing, completely holy creator of all things visible and invisible. In him, all things hold together. They exist because he wills them to exist. There is no one like him. He is fully and completely worthy of our respect. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our humble obedience. And when Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, friends, he means it. When he says, your sins are forgiven, he means it. And when he says, follow me, he means it. When he says, go and sin no more, he does not say that for his own health and well-being, for ours, and he means it. When he says, I'll be with you, he means it. When he says, I am coming soon, he means it. So I need to ask you, have you humbled yourself before God become flesh and invited him to be your Lord, your Savior, your King? 
You're not inviting him to be your buddy. Not inviting him to be your assistant. You're inviting him to be God for you. You've done that. Will you bend the knee of your life and your spirit to the unrivaled, only great God of the universe who laid down his life willingly and triumphed over the grave because he's God? I just want to invite you to invite him into your life today because on the day of his return, you really don't want to be unprepared. If we had time, we could read scriptures, all the scriptures that highlight what he will be like when he returns. And it will be, shall we say, overwhelming. Which is precisely why his best friend writes these words. 1 John 2, 28. And now, dear children, remain in fellowship with Christ so that when he returns, you'll be full of courage and not shrink back from him in shame. Scriptures paint a picture that's very different than how we think of him. He is merciful. He is forgiving. He is kind. Which is precisely why he came in the veiled, hidden form that he did. The appeal of Scripture is for you and me to respond to his mercy now. That when his greatness and glory is unveiled in its fullness to the earth in which we live we'll be able to respond with courage and not shrink back from him. I want to invite you to stand with me. We're going to close in prayer this morning, and maybe some of us this morning just need to recommit our lives to Jesus because the Jesus we committed ourselves to was somebody different than what we just read about in Scripture. And, uh, and I assure you, I've not picked out just a hand. I've just picked out a few passages, but if we had time, we could go through parable after parable event after event in the life of Jesus, and you would go, if we just highlighted some of those things, you would just go, oh my goodness, I have focused on this that makes me feel good instead of the full picture of who he is. Maybe this morning you just need to recommit your life to him. Maybe some of us, we need to commit our lives to him for the first time and just invite him to be our Lord, our Savior, our King. Maybe some of us need prayer for some other area of our life. Maybe some of us need to be uh, baptized. Uh, you know, Lori mentioned that. We're going to be baptizing some people next weekend. Maybe, maybe you need to be one of them. Jesus was baptized, according to his words, to fulfill all righteousness. He told his disciples, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you've not been baptized, you need to be baptized. It's an expression of your faith. Maybe your parents baptized you. Yea, them, it's their faith, not yours. It's an expression of your faith. Every instance of baptism in Scripture is a decision on the part of the person surrendering. Maybe that's what you need to do. We can help you with that. Maybe some of you need to decide today that 
you're going to be baptized and you'll make that next weekend with us. Or if not that, we'll help you figure out another one. But maybe there's something else. Let's bow our heads and we'll pray and then we'll be dismissed. I'm glad you made it. hope you'll reflect on these passages and honor Jesus for who he really is in your life. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness, your kindness, your mercy. We are undeserving. And so we humbly come before you and we acknowledge your greatness and your glory and the mystery that is your love. That one so great as you would care about people like us who at our best are sinners and broken and at our worst, just beyond description. And so, Lord, we thank you that you loved us, that you died to pay the penalty for my sins, our sins. And you rose to claim the keys of death and Hades, to triumph over death, and that you might be able to promise us eternal life if we put our faith in you. This morning, Lord, we just look heavenward and we put our faith in you. We trust you. There's no one like you before or since you. You alone are God. You humbled yourself and became one of us that we might comprehend who you really are, your true nature and identity. We thank you for that. Forgive us for the times when we shrink you and think of you as less than you really are. This morning we humble ourselves and we invite you to fill us with your Holy Spirit, to cleanse us with your shed blood, to make us yours, adopt us into your family, write our names in the Lamb's book of life, Lord. Every one of us wants that. Every one of us wants to know you for who you are and not who we imagine you to be sometimes. Every one of us wants to greet you on the day of your return with courage instead of shame. So cleanse us that that might be so, and fill us that that might be so. Lord, if some of us need to be baptized, help us to have the courage to follow through and obey you in that. But as we endeavor to follow, we we promise to honor you and to follow you, to continue to learn of you. We want to please you. Lord, would you help us as we... Endeavor to live our lives. We've got all of us. We've got challenges. Just walk with us as you promised. Never leave us, Lord. Never leave us. Now as we leave this place, Father, would you go with us? Would you uh, make us even more fully your people? We'll rejoice to be yours, to be lights, salt, wherever we go, for your kingdom's sake. Go with us now. May your blessing rest on everyone. It's in Jesus' name we lift this prayer, and everybody agreed with me and said, Amen. 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 Bless you all.